Thank you, Mark. I don't know if you always notice this in the bulletin, but at the bottom of the right-hand page, when you have it open, there is a memory verse that we like for you to internalize, and, and as we hide God's Word in our heart, and, and uh, we keep it the same for several weeks running, uh, so that you'll keep it before you. I hope you notice that. And today, we have a new one from Romans 13, 14, and I want us to say it together, okay? Well, I'm going to say it together. Ready? But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Let's say it one more time. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Now that sounds massive. It sounds like a, a huge challenge. Uh, what, but what does it mean? And how is it done? Well, that's where we're headed today. Uh, as you, we continue our study in Romans uh, chapter 13, we're going to finish up that chapter today, but uh, I, I want to start with a, a uh, grandparent story, because as, as you know, that there, are a to- there are times when stories about my grandchildren accidentally come into the sermons. So uh, some, of you, I've, some of you have heard me tell this, uh, Bessie was doing a craft at the island in our kitchen with our grandchildren over the Christmas holidays. And it's one of those crafts where one side is, is, is hidden and you do the craft and then you sort of turn it over and there's the reveal, okay? So she, would, they were, she was doing this with the, with the grandchildren and, and they were getting all into it except for the six-year-old New York boy. And, and you know, all the others were getting it, but you know, he wanted to do it his own way, his own way, his own way. And Betsy kept saying, but you know, if you do that, it's not going to be this. Well, you know, he just kept... And finally, he turned to me, and he put up his hands and said, what's up with your wife? (laughs) Well, he is from New York. So I explained to him in some detail what's up with my wife. (laughs) Problem was, he was so cute when he said it. (laughs) <laughs> the struggle with raising children is, well, in one aspect of it is, is sin, right? Their sin. And yes, ours. And the message of our culture, the, everything that you see in the media, whether it's from the old afternoon TV specials or Hallmark Channel or whatever else, countless other worldview resources, tell us, you know, you, we are innately good. We, 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 we have to be taught to be hateful by, by people who don't think the right way, usually identified as conservatives. But it's interesting. Studies keep, come, there's the, there are waves of studies about small children, and there's a new wave of them that's come out, children 18 months down, to show that we are born with self-centeredness. Hardwired to be rebellious. So contrary to what academics have been saying for the last 100 years, social theorists are now realizing this new truth that we're not innately good. We, we may be, in fact, innately bad and have to be taught 
to be good. Scripture has said this all along. There is none good. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are not sick, but dead in our trespasses and sins. We cannot save ourselves. And, and the wonderful good news of the gospel is that God took the initiative, that he entered history, lived a sinless life, died in my place so that he could, by grace, give me what I could not earn by works. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, not what's earned, but the gift of God, is eternal life in Jesus Christ. When I place my faith in him, we're redeemed by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the wonderful thing. That's not the end of the story. We're born again. That's the beginning of the story. And by God's Spirit, through God's Word, we're now taught to be good, to incarnate what Romans 12, 1 and 2 has been telling us, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we will incarnate what God's will is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect, and that we would please Him in that way, and would, we would build up one another in that way. And, and Romans 12 through 16 give us the specifics on how we're to do that. Here's what that looks like. That's what Romans 12 through 16 is about. And, and we're finishing the second chapter in that today. We're finishing uh, chapter 13. We've gone through chapter 12. We're finishing chapter 13, focusing on verses 11 through 14. And, and just scanning these verses, you'll notice there are a series of contrasts here. You know, don't and do. Put off, put on. Night, day. Darkness, light. And verse 11 begins with this command, do this. Do what? Well, you know, and this is a little review, there are three rules for Bible interpretation, right? The three rules are Context, context, context. Exactly. You are so good. So as I read verses 8 through 10, that's the context that tells us what he means when he says, do this. So I'm going to ask you, what word do you hear repeated five times? Okay? I'm going to start with verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another <laughs> for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law for this you shall not commit adultery you shall not murder you shall not steal you shall not covet and if there's any other commandment it is summed up in this saying you shall your neighbor as yourself love does no wrong to a neighbor therefore is the fulfillment of the law so what word is repeated five times hmm love verse 11 begins do this that is love your neighbor and last week lewis explained that the command love your neighbor is broader than simply love the other recipients of this letter or love the other people who are sitting with you in church as you worship together when jesus was asked by a lawyer as lewis pointed out which of the 613 commandments is the greatest Jesus replied with an answer from Deuteronomy, love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then he added, and love your neighbor as yourself. So, love God vertically, 
love your neighbor horizontally. And then the lawyer asked, well, who is my neighbor? How broad does that category extend? And then Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan, and the point of the parable is this, who isn't your neighbor? Everyone in your orbit is your neighbor. Now, the, love to, the command to love is not a new command in the context. In chapter 12, verse 9, love must be sincere. Chapter 12, verse 10, be devoted to each other in love. Now, later on, in chapter 14, as we get there, Verse 15, Paul says, if you do not respect your brother's or sister's convictions in what we call gray areas, if you refuse to give them a best-case interpretation for what they allow, the freedoms that they allow themselves, then you are no longer acting in love. And he's pointing back to this. Do this. And when you expand the context beyond the book of Romans to the rest of the New Testament, there are so many statements about love. I, I put a few scriptures in your bulletin notes, and I'd encourage you to just meditate on some of those later on, but I'll, I'll, I'll point out a couple. Love is the motivator behind redemption. God so loved the world. In Romans 5, 8, as was, was pointed out last week, God demonstrates his own love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul praises love as the greatest of all the virtues, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. There are 20 one another's in the New Testament, throughout the New Testament, that describe horizontal relationships. We've studied those before. Be devoted to one another, encourage one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, 20 one another's. 19 of the 20 occur one time. They overlap with each other, but 19 of the 20 occur just one time. The 20th one occurs 18 times love one another it's pretty clear the mandate is ever before us how do we love one another how do we do that lewis made the point that commands to love are not just sentimentality without content god doesn't look down upon us and say emote what does that mean what do you mean by love i mean if someone had played the song Feelings for Paul, he would have gagged. Okay. Biblical love lives between the guardrails of God's revealed word, his law. And as we saw last week, law channels love, love fulfills law. Law channels love, love fulfills law. That's what verses 8 and 10 say. Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. So love is not just a feeling. Biblical love is action. You behave in loving ways. You take action, behave in loving ways, and emotions of love follow actions of love. What actions? Well, that's what Romans 12 through 16 is about, and other passages as well. One more thing from this context before we dig in in verse 11. Why do we love? According to Paul, you ready for this reason? Because God said so. It is our duty. Verse 8, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. And he makes clear in the context, it's not that I owe you love. Rather, I owe God to love you. 
Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 1.22. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified yourselves, your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Peter is saying that love is a response of obedience to truth. I owe God to love you in specific ways that are defined by God's word. The early church father, Origen, and I put the note, uh, quote in your, in your notes, said, the debt of love remains with us permanently and never leaves us. This is a debt which we both discharge every day, but forever owe. Last week, last week, Betsy and I paid off our car. been 23 years it's about time (laughs) that's all I owe it's done no more obligation you can pay off your mortgage that's all I owe that's done no further obligation but you can never say I'm done with loving on people that's all I owe I'm done no further obligation but here is the beautiful irony the the joy of this you owe the debt of love to God for each other but the more you pay this debt the richer you are so we owe God to love one another it's our duty and is God's command sufficient motivation a yes b no Hey, thank you. Absolutely. God said so. That should be enough. But verse 11 begins with the command, do this. Actually, it's a little stronger in the Greek because there's no verb. The verb is absorbed in the demonstrative pronoun, this. It's it's as though Paul is pointing back to verses 8 through 10, summed up as love your neighbor, and he puts brackets around it. And when he gets to verse 11, he just says, this, <laughs> this, you know, what's there? Love your neighbor, all, all of that, this. And, and, and verses 11 through 14 reveals, however, one more reason, another motivation beyond duty, beyond that God said so, for why we are to do this. He adds the idea of future accountability because Jesus is coming back. As 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of of God and and render an account for the way that we have lived our lives. This is not for salvation. It has to do with our rewards and the faithfulness with which we have lived our lives in the future. Dr. Kenneth Boa is a good friend of this church, spoken here for our family camps a number of times. And uh, Ken is fond of saying that Christians, have, Christians should have just two days in their calendar. Two days in your calendar. Today and that day. Those are the two days. Verses 11 through 14 challenge us to live godly lives, including love your neighbor. It's broad, but it broadens out from that. To live godly lives today in anticipation of that day and 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 the fact 
that I will stand before Jesus in that day should motivate how I live today. He's putting ethics with eschatology, uh, uh, prophecy with practice. And he doesn't add any details to our knowledge of end times. Instead, he simply points to that accountability as a reason for godly living. So it's not added information, it's added motivation. So, let's make sure that we get this. I owe God to love my neighbor. That's my duty. God said so. And secondly, I'm accountable to God in that day for whether or not I have loved my neighbor. Verse 11, do this, or this, live in love. Why? Verse 11 continues, knowing the time that is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. So, wake up to the opportunity that we have today to have eternal impact that will last unto that day. When I was 16, I think, somebody said this couplet to me, and I've never forgotten, and I've thought about it for all these years. One short life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's absolutely true. In Matthew 24, Jesus said, Be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. If the head of the house had known at, that time, at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert, would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready For the Son of Man is coming at the hour when you do not think he will. Paul put it this way in 1 Thessalonians 5. But you, brethren, are not in the darkness that that day should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but be on the alert. Romans 13, 12 says the day is near. So when Jesus comes, there's kind of a a, a do and a don't. Don't be doing what you shouldn't be doing. (laughs) Instead, do be doing what you should be doing. It's kind of simple. But that could lead to a misunderstanding. The point is not about being embarrassed or exposed. You know, I, I sure do hope that when Jesus comes, he doesn't catch me doing this or that. That really is a low view of God. Um, Jesus said, I'm with you always. Paul reminds us the Lord is near. The point is not about keeping something or trying to keep anything from an omniscient God. There are no secrets from him. The point is that we are to keep short spiritual accounts, living today in light of that day, so that our hearts and lives are prepared and welcoming when he comes. So that at any time, any hour, any day, if God the Father were to put a button in front of you and said, my son, my daughter, when you press that button, Jesus will return. If you were to do that, live in such a way that you wouldn't have to turn your back on that and run off and try to get your life in order, (laughs) but instead that you would joyfully say, yes, you're ready. 
my friend, I, I told you about it, Eric, colonel in the army, West Point, said on his deathbed to me, Gary, is it crazy that I can't wait to see him? He was prepared. Why? Verse 11 continues, For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Our final salvation, when all things will be made right, our total redemption. Verse 12 continues, The night is almost gone and the day is near. So wake up. Wake up. Live today in light of that day. Verse 12 continues, Therefore, that is today, lay aside, which means to put off, Lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. And, and I know you're, if you're familiar with the New Testament, your mind is probably, when you read put on the armor, your mind probably goes straight to Ephesians 6. And what would you be thinking about there? Yeah, the armor of God. You, yeah, some, some guys are just so specifically, they know too much. <laughs> That's right, Jim. And the armor of God, exactly. You, you think of the armor of God. You put on the armor of God. But here he actually says something more. As you put on, you must first put off. Or actually, they, the one action displaces the other action. I am to discard anything that I shouldn't be wearing that hinders me in running the race. And here you think about what Hebrews 12 says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside, put off every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, riveting our eyes on Jesus. One New Testament scholar put it well, and I'm going to quote an extensive quote here. He said, quote, we have to run for our lives from stuff like pornography and gossip. I found it interesting that he put those two together, pornography and gossip. That is why Paul speaks about fleeing so often. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from idolatry. Flee from the love of money. Flee from the desires of youth. That is why Paul told Timothy, but you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. 1 Timothy 6, 11. But let me be blunt. Um, maybe, hopefully not too crude. I think all too often we think of avoiding sin like walking down a sidewalk and an animal has done something on the sidewalk and we try to sidestep it. I just don't want to step in it. I don't want to step in the sin. That's not the way the Bible describes sin. The Bible describes sin more like run for your life from an angry lion who thinks you are tasty. The devil is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And you are on his menu labeled today's special. So he gets more specific in verse 13. Let us behave properly as in the day. Not, there are the three nots here, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. There are three pairs of negatives. The first two, 
carousing and drunkenness. These have to do with when you lose mental control and inhibitions. Do I have any patterns of behavior that I have allowed to become addictive to control my life, to control my mind, whether it's food or alcohol or recreational drugs or opioids, whatever it may be? The second pair, sexual promiscuity and sensuality. That's about illicit sex, adultery, pornography. Anything that aborts God's plan for joyful, playful sexuality within the covenant of marriage. The third, last pair, strife and jealousy. Those are about bad attitudes and personality conflicts where I'm more concerned about me and my rights than I am about fulfilling the one another's, about loving my neighbor. Now, I'm fully aware that none of these would ever happen at a church. Right? Wrong. All three pairs, if you look at them, they're all rooted in my desire to please me, not, the, not my Lord. All three pairs constitute a failure to love God and to love my neighbor. All three pairs are the opposite of what he means when he says earlier in that verse to behave properly, living today in light of that day. Instead, verse 14, he, he begins with a strong adversative. In contrast to that old lifestyle, everything has changed. But, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. That's our memory verse. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We've said that there are many ways that the Bible describes personal holiness. I've counted 49. I know there are a lot more. Like be holy, pursue righteousness, discipline yourselves for godliness, be filled with the Holy Spirit, be imitators of Christ, work out your own salvation, be doers of the word, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And here, in other places, put off, put on, clothe yourselves with Christ. This is not exactly the same as putting on the armor of God. It's close. The picture here is that you're wrapping yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus becomes your armor. You start to live a red-letter life. How do you take this metaphor, put on, and make it real? Look a little bit deeper. Jesus is described here by his full title. Three words. Lord Jesus Christ. This is my week for counting, I guess. These three words together occur 85 times in the New Testament. 85 times. So common. It's a part of the way that we are to think. And, and this is not just a fun fact. This has significance. Lord refers to his authority. He is the, and we usually say king of kings, lord of lords. He is the king of kings. He is the lord of lords. He, he is the one whom we obey. He's the one who says, all authority has been given me in heaven and in earth. It's also, the word Lord is also the covenant name of God throughout the Old Testament, the most common name, Yahweh. And Jesus Christ is Yahweh. Confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ as Lord. Believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He is Lord. The second name, 
Jesus means Yahweh saves or Yahweh the Savior. It refers to the work of redemption. Gabriel told Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Christ is the Old Testament word for anointed one. He is the prophesied Messiah, the ultimate fulfillment of all of God's promises. When I was saved, I was placed in Christ. That's my position. I am, if you can imagine just being enfolded and absorbed into Christ. There are other ways of putting it, but that's one of the most common ways that the Bible describes it. That's my position. But Scripture is clear that growing in godliness is a process. It's a process of becoming who I am in Christ. So when I put on the Lord Jesus Christ, I am clothing myself with a new, renewed mind saturated with the truth that Jesus is my Lord, my King, the authority over my life. Jesus is my Redeemer, the one who loves me so much that he'd rather die than live without me. Jesus is the Anointed One, the Christ, anointed by God in eternity past to love me into eternity future. The one who fulfills all things. This, this is the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom we are to put on. Now, I know that put on is used of our salvation, where we're clothed with Christ's righteousness. But the point here is our sanctification, the process of growing and of realizing this in our lives more and more as we follow his example, as we listen to his words. There is a beautiful picture of this in 1 Peter 2.21. It's a great word picture. Listen to this. Christ gave you an example for you to follow in his steps. Christ gave you an example to follow in his steps. And here's the thing. There are a number of times that there are different words for example used in the New Testament. This word occurs here only, this is the only occurrence of this particular word in all the New Testament. Christ gave you uh, an example. Example. It's the word hupagramon. Hupa, under, hupodermic, hypodermic needle under your skin. Gramon, gramata, letters, grammar school. Here's the meaning, under letters. They are under letters. And as soon as I tell you what it means, you're going to get it. When you were learning to draw or to write, did you ever place thin paper over what you were going to draw? what you were going to write, okay? What you wanted to copy. That is exactly the idea here. To put on Christ is to obey Christ, to follow Christ, to trace Christ. And, and the genuineness of the traced copy is described by its effects. Because if you are tracing Christ, if you have put on the Lord Jesus Christ, then when people look at you, who should they see? Jesus. When people listen to your words, who should they hear? When people regard your work, the work that you have done in school or in the workplace, whose work should they be considering? If you have put on Christ, your life is lived in red letters. You are tracing him. You live with Jesus wrapped around you, all these beautiful pictures. 
Peter, before the crucifixion, was impetuous, became violent with the sword, had really bad aim, but he was violent with the sword, cursing, denying Christ three times. Peter afterwards, the one who had put on Christ, when he was filled with the Holy Spirit, whose bold testimony before the Sanhedrin was this. I'm reading from Acts 4, 12 and 13. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which, by which we must be saved. And then there's this statement. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. We've seen this before. We've, we've seen this attitude before. We've seen this courage before we've seen this honesty before we've heard this message before this is spirit enabled godly living because when you put on christ in this way your life is not going to be explainable in terms of you it's going to point beyond you as, as you pre- and finally as you press into this word picture realize you're going to be clothed with something something so to the extent that I do not put on Christ, to that extent, <laughs> I've kept on the deeds of darkness. I have, I'm still clothed with that. I, in in my, the process of my walk with him, that's what verse 12 calls them. So I've put that back on. And I'm gradually, beco- if, if I don't put on Christ, I'm gradually becoming a soft target for the world, the flesh, and the devil to feast on my soul. And that's why the last phrase in verse 14 contains this warning. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. He's saying more than, okay, obey now. He's saying more than that. The phrase make no provision exposes the intentionality of sin. It exposes the fact that while sometimes sin is opportunistic and and pops up, and, and I say yes to that, and I sin. The truth is often sin is preplanned. Or else, I have pre-planned to lower my defenses. In Genesis 2 and 3, Adam and Eve were warned not to partake of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In verse 6 of chapter 3 says, before they took and ate from the fruit, before they took and ate, says this, quote, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise. How long did it take for Eve to think that way? I don't know. But you'd have to linger and look and let your mind dwell at least just a little bit on that which tempts you. You'd have to think about what it would be like to partake, what it would be like to have the promised results, to delight in that forbidden beauty, to think about the desirableness of that sin. Right? The text itself actually makes this point subtly in the choice of the verb that's used. The woman saw that the tree was these things. She saw. That verb is the same verb that's used in Genesis 30, verse 1 and verse 9 to tell us when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no more children. And in in verse 9, when Leah saw that she had stopped bearing. How long did that take? Did they just look down and say, hey, I, I just noticed I'm not pregnant. No. Now, I'm not saying that in the garden it took any kind of time like that. 
but, but the point is, she didn't just glance at the tree. She thought about it, meditated on it. And we might, maybe we might say something like she fantasized about it, because I think that's what we do with some of our sins. That's how sin works. In other words, she made provision for it, mentally. We don't always pre-plan to sin, but we open that door to what tempts us when we remove the armor, when we remove our defenses. Paul says, make no provision for the flesh with regard to its lust. There are a couple of quick ideas for application. The applications really are kind of never-ending. When I was young, when I was young, a big thing in some, rock, uh, some youth groups was to burn your rock and roll records. Or so I was told. I never actually did that. I'm not big on bonfires. But I am big on this. You may need to physically remove from your home that which tempts you. I do better on weight control when certain things are not in the house. Don't tell her. When they're just not there, I just, I just do better. If it is there, I'm a really good forager. Many years ago, I had a friend who had a stack of Playboy magazines under his bed, the bed where he slept with his wife. And uh, he actually told me he liked the articles. Now... I looked at a number of those when I was young, and I can't ever remember reading an article. Yeah. These days, of course, it would be the Internet. If you're tempted to look at things that you shouldn't be seeing at night, leave your computer at the office or put it out in your car or, or just leave it there. Don't turn it on. And make no provision for the flesh and, and by the way don't sit here and excuse yourself because my suggestions won't work in your circumstance you're smart enough to figure out what will work um, you may have a, a monitoring program like covenant eyes on your but don't pre-plan to fail don't pre-plan your sin don't pre-plan to remove your defenses against it Paul said make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts instead put on Pre-plan for holiness. And here's the last illustration. Because he mentions the flesh, and so I, I, I did go there. But our sins are not just carnal or physical. There are also other ways to make provision for not loving our neighbor. If you're going into a meeting with someone that is potentially confrontational, don't pre-plan or fantasize how you are going to tell them off. This is what I'm going to tell him. And boy, when I get done, she'll know what for. No. Instead, pre-plan how you're going to love that person. How, because you are clothed with Christ, you're going to walk in there in red letters. You're going, you're going to show them Christ's love and his truth. Have a, do you have a potentially awful family reunion coming up? I, you see, I know some of you, I, I know all of you, but I know some of you have those kinds of family situations. How do you pre-plan?
for that in a way that shows the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're supposed to do. Because maybe that really awkward, bad, horrible, anticipated meeting, from God's viewpoint, is a divine appointment, is, is an opportunity that's not about you, but about them. As you have put on the Lord Jesus Christ and you love them with Christ's love. The applications to this are just wonderfully endless. How do you pre-plan for holiness? How will you live today to love your neighbor so that in that day you have loved them with Christ's love? Because every day is today and is one less day to invest for eternity. Lord, we thank you for your work.